Anyone familiar with Interstate 26 into and out of Asheville is long familiar with delays, changing traffic patterns, and the knot of I-40 and 240 some refer to as malfunction junction. But the I-26 connector carries the long promise of a clean, multimodal, locally dedicated artery. I'm hesitant because I've covered this for so long and it's never happened, but it looks like it is happening separating interstate traffic from local traffic. That was not really discussed 30 years ago, but it was only after a lot of community discussion and I think community pressure that DOT engineers designed a highway that separates interstate traffic from local traffic. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Overlook, a daily podcast about the news, arts, issues, and trends of Asheville, North Carolina. My guest today is Jason Sanford, a long-ago Citizen Times reporter who founded the Substack newsletter Ash Vegas Hot Sheet. He's well-versed on the detours and delays, promises, and politics of I-26. He'll fill us in on the history of the connector and where the project stands, the economic interests at play, and how community feedback and pushback have shaped its direction. Charles Payne has seen what's wrong with public education from three perspectives, as a student, as a teacher, and as a black American. With the help of the Magnetic Theater's program to cultivate playwrights, Payne has written a new work of art called The Classroom Ain't Enough. It's storytelling, poetry, and original music woven into what the playwright calls a choreo poem. Payne says the overarching message in the narrative is that a child only educated in school is an uneducated child. The Classroom Ain't Enough premieres June 2nd and runs through June 17th at the Magnetic Theater. For tickets, go to themagnetictheater with an R-E dot org. I began my conversation with Jason Sanford by asking how he first intersected as an Asheville citizen and as an Asheville journalist with I-26 construction projects. When I came back to report news in Asheville, that was late 1992, early 1993, and there was a lot of excitement and anticipation about this big new road project that a lot of people refer to as the Interstate 26 Connector. And essentially, that's a seven or eight mile length of major highway improvements including some big new bridges across the French Broad River. That's the one that gets the most attention to basically connect future I-26, which we now call 1923, north of Asheville to I-26 as it comes, if you're imagined driving from the airport into Asheville and you're on Interstate 26, there's a missing link and that is the area right in the heart of Asheville as you cross the river on, used to be called the Smoky Park Bridge, now it is the Bowen Bridge. But essentially, Matt, it's Patton Avenue. So imagine driving on an interstate right onto a local street and trying to weave your way through to get back on the interstate. That is the craziness of the connector issue that we have. So the connector, as you're defining it, is... When you're driving north on 26 or 1923, and you make that right turn and you start merging, there's other roads that merge in, and you 
are now going in the same direction as people coming off Patton, people coming off, there's three feeders into that road. Am I correct on that? Yeah, yes, that's right. And there are issues with that around the bridges as you cross the French Broad River and also at the other major interchange. Again, if you're heading north from the airport and the Asheville outlets, there's another major interchange, I-26, I-40, and I-240. I've heard locals refer to it for many years as malfunction junction because it used to be a really hairy kind of interchange. And there was some road widening done in the mid 2000s or 2010s that improved it somewhat, but still there's a problem. And we'll talk more about that as we get into some of the details of the work. But yeah, there's just some weird connections that we have needed to be improved for a long time. So in the mid 1990s, there was a lot of anticipation about this because The idea was that with the highway improvement, you would have a major interstate highway running basically from Charleston all the way up through Asheville to Knoxville. And Matt, back then, the idea was that future interstate improvements would take I-26 through Virginia all the way up into Ohio. That was the dream of the economic developers of the time. In the earliest days of this road improvement project in the 1970s, the idea was that from the federal government level, roads in Appalachia needed to be improved to improve economic development. That was the assumption, was that roads bring economic development. A lot of people will now argue with that, and there are a number of studies that show that may not be true or may not always be true. But the idea, I'd say, in the mid-70s was... Uh, highways in Appalachia need to be improved, and money flowed. And the project way back then, Matt, for improving inter- Interstate 26 was called, it was just labeled A-10. It was an A-10 project. And that showed up on North Carolina Department of Transportation road improvement plans. It faded. The money never came. The next iteration was roughly in the mid-'80s. Tennessee officials in eastern Tennessee around Knoxville and Johnson City had a smart idea. They had a highway, 81, that was not designated an interstate, but it was built to interstate standards. And that all they had to do was buy a bunch of signs, label it as an interstate. And the hope was, again, to spur economic development, but also to kick North Carolina, especially into gear, to fix its road connection to 81 so that traffic would flow more freely because back in the 80s and 90s, the road in Madison County connecting to Tennessee was really a rough mountain two-lane road. And there was You're talking about before 26 came through there? Yes, because we'll talk about the widening in Madison County and because what you see when you drive now into Madison County, future 26 was a six-mile brand-new road construction, massive engineering project, one of the most challenging in North Carolina DOT history. But before that, you just had a two-lane road, and there was a lot of attention at that time about its safety and lack thereof. It was dangerous. And so when Tennessee officials designated 81 an interstate, that was putting pressure on North Carolina to fix its road so that you didn't have a bunch of traffic. A lot of people feared that there was all this traffic 
funneling from Tennessee onto a two-lane road in North Carolina, and that would be very dangerous. And economic development, always economic development. You painted how in the 1970s, at the very dawn of these conversations, how economic development was at the heart of it. We're leapfrogging a little bit here to connect it to the I-26 connector project. We haven't even talked about the last 25 years uh, in the interim. Is it still economic development that is the underpinning of all of this? Or are there other considerations at the heart of this conversation? I had Stephanie Monsendal in here as a guest a, a while ago. She talked about the multimodal element of what this connector could be for pedestrians, bike traffic at all. I imagine those things never came up in the conversations even just 20 years ago. So let's jump a little bit now to the I-26 connector, the evolution to the dawn of that conversation. How have things evolved from what you've just set up from the 70s and 80s to today? I would have to say, I think the whole economic development idea has fallen by the wayside as the decades wore on. It was just, can we get this road built? Let's just get it built. There still were some safety considerations, but not a lot. The traffic as you cross what is now Bowen Bridge still is a dangerous weave, but you don't hear a lot of super high concern about safety. So it's developed into, let's just get this project. We need this project to get done. And more and more, as you say, Matt, I would say even in the last 10 years, the focus has been more on multimodal transportation with doing whatever we can to make this project friendlier to bicyclists and pedestrians. From what I understand, and maybe this is the modern or the, the current iteration of the connector, is that the needs of people traveling from West Asheville, Patton Avenue, into downtown, they're different than the needs of people coming off the interstate. And that the idea is to separate the two. Right. Now, I can't imagine that this was part of the conversation, or was it, 30 years ago? And if it wasn't, how has the actual physical architecture of what is going to happen in the connector, how has that evolved itself yes. as different things have come up in the conversation? To answer your question about separating interstate traffic from local traffic, you're right. That was not really discussed 30 years ago, but it was only after a lot of community discussion and I think community pressure that DOT engineers designed a highway that separates interstate traffic from local traffic. In doing that, Matt, it's crazy when you look at the design of the bridges it's going to require, I think, three new bridges to take 240 traffic, 26, and 40 traffic and separate it from what will become a truly local street in Patton Avenue. Local officials like to refer to that as a kind of a key boulevard. How much of what's happening now takes into account or doesn't take into account the history of gentrification, redlining of the further marginalization of certain neighborhoods that may not have as strong of a political muscle or financial muscle to make things happen in their favor? The project, as I understand it today, does take into account those neighborhoods, and there are two key places. And again, I don't have the best up-to-date information and specifics about how this will happen. But when we talk about the public 
housing complex, Hillcrest Apartments. The new highway construction will better connect, according to DOT officials, Hillcrest with Asheville, with downtown Asheville. Right now, as we know, it's surrounded by interstate and it's cut off. And it's a weird kind of one way in, one way out way to get in there. That will be improved, according to DOT officials, as I understand it. The other major community that we've talked about for many years is the Burton Street community in West Asheville. And the debate there, Matt, was how wide is the interstate going to be when it is widened through West Asheville? One of the earliest DOT plans was 10 lanes. You mean five in each direction? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. That takes up massive real estate. Yes. And then that really caught people off guard. And I think DOT was like, okay, it's only going to be eight lanes. So then there was this whole discussion about, oh, my God, it's going to be eight lanes. On one hand, I can imagine, look how long it's taken here. We're talking close to 50 years of conversation that this project has taken shape. And we've seen people probably within DOT, certainly within the state legislature, people who are at the levers of control have come and gone, died, been born, and different interests have had voices come and go, and the social concerns have come and gone. How can this project get quote-unquote done, when these voices continually come in with different needs, different ideas, different priorities, is that part of why this project has taken so long, is that we just have this slowly revolving door of different voices and priorities that come into play here? So let me just answer your first question about disenfranchised communities, the widening in West Asheville and how it affect, would affect the Burton Street community in particular. As I said, the very earliest plans were a 10-lane ten, ten widening through West Asheville. That really upset a lot of people. DOT came back, okay, it's only we're going to do eight lanes because you know they have all these formulas for traffic projections and how much traffic is going to come through Asheville in 2050. The community pressure remained, and I want to say it was around 2010, 2015, the DOT came back and stunned the community and said, we'll do six lanes. We're only going to widen the highway to six lanes through West Asheville. And I think my read on that was, in large part, that was a response to the community concerns about how it would affect the neighborhoods. Let me just answer your question about this decades-long discussion in the community and some of the forces that have delayed it. One, of course, is always funding. There have been specific periods where DOT funding was really crunched. Most recently, COVID. COVID really took down highway funds because the DOT brings in money through gasoline taxes, highway use taxes. That went away for a year or two when we were on COVID lockdown. And there were a couple of instances earlier where short DOT funding meant a delay in the I-26 project. The other major delay, as I see it, has been at times a conflict in our community. And I have read it as the local activist, pedestrian and bicycle friendly coalition and the business community. The Chamber of Commerce, for example, is often just a good umbrella. 
And those groups have publicly been at odds over the years, Matt, saying we don't want the highway project speeded up. The, the business people said, we do want the highway project speeded up. There was a point where DOT said, we could fast track you. Do you want that community? The business community said, yes. The activists said, no, we're still trying to work out all these other details and you haven't committed to X, Y, Z. No. And so the way I see that, Matt, over the years, and there have been a couple other examples of that clash. And when a community like Asheville is trying to bend a bureaucracy like the North Carolina Department of Transportation, what the state level people want to see is a community speaking in unison. Asheville was not speaking in unison for many years. And even now, it may not be speaking in unison. You just touched on various interests. And I don't know that these interests have to be opposed to each other, but you're talking about a a quote, pro-business interest. You're talking about a multimodal pedestrian interest and something safe for cyclists, safe for different ways of getting across from West Asheville, North Asheville into downtown. Social justice interests around the African-American neighborhoods that have been decimated in the past. Yeah. And let's just even talk about that. How to navigate social justice interests in a physical sense with roads. Tell me if I'm wrong on this. I imagine the communities that were unhappy with the original development of the interstates and how it divided communities, split through neighborhoods. I imagine many properties were purchased through eminent domain against the wishes of the original occupants of those properties. All the dust that has sunk over those projects in a social sense, the ill will that has been tamped down over decades, people never were happy with it, but the sentiments probably of the 1960s and 70s aren't as on fire in the same way in the 90s, 2000s, 2010s. And then when you start talking and about social justice in relation to these interstate projects, I imagine it kicks up the dust from all those long-held resentments of what happened originally. And so you can't tackle this in the, quote, most efficient way, that you have to take these projects on in a sensitive way that DOT was never trained to manifest before. Am I off base on that? No, I think that's right. And so what we're talking about is an evolution in the specific physical design of the highway. We are also talking about an evolution in our thinking about how roads affect people, like you just explained. And when you think about a bureaucracy like the North Carolina DOT, there's been an evolution there in one of the big changes. Again, a lot of what it boils down to for DOT is money. And one of the big changes that will be happening with the bridge building piece of this project through Asheville is what's called design build. So what DOT is doing is working with engineers that are literally still working out issues and designing as they go. Whereas in the past, again, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, The project would be designed to be like, boom, this is it. We'll plop you down and that's it. That's not the way they work anymore. And if they don't work that way anymore, it's almost improvisational in a sense, in a way that engineers 
of yesteryear, at least, were not trained. So have you talked with DOT officials or have you read anything or heard anything that gives voice to how these considerations are taking shape, how they will take shape in this I-26 connector project? What are some possibilities of design that are being talked about now, if you have any sense of that, that were never talked about yesteryear? One very specific example that I do know is that Bowen Bridge, as we know it, again, as we've talked about, will become a truly local street. A local boulevard is the buzzword that the DOT officials are using. That existing bridge will stay. It will be a local street with east-west Patton Avenue traffic crossing the river. It will essentially be widened on both sides, Matt, so that you could walk across the river in a much more friendly way than right now. There's a sidewalk that's caged in and it's not friendly at all. So in the future, you'll have, imagine it extended out one or two lanes, that bridge on either side with people biking and walking across. Step into the weird, fantastical wonderland of Alice and the White Rabbit through the lens of Asheville Contemporary Dance Theater. It's a family show with colorful sets and costumes in collaboration with the new studio of dance. Alice and the White Rabbit opens May 26th and runs six performances through June 4th at the Intimate BB Theater in downtown Asheville. For tickets and info, go to the company's website, acdt.org. The second half of my conversation continued as Jason Sanford filled me in on a particularly Ashevillian proposal. When it became more and more clear, okay, yeah, the DOT is going to build at least one new bridge across the river, the community's idea was, let's have a signature bridge. We are an arts community. We want to be proud and loud about how we value architecture and the arts and express that in our road project. I don't think there was ever a plan to build a Golden Gate style bridge, but that was always held up. Are they talking about like a, that kind of bridge over the French Broad? Yes, Is that what they're yes. talking about? Like a, the, there's a beautiful bridge in Charleston. I don't know the name of it, but it's a beautiful span done in, a, in an architecturally significant way. That's what the community wanted. There has been a group of local architects and designers that have pushed for a lot of improvements in this project. And the local group had the ear of DOT, these local designers. What happened was DOT came back and said, we're not doing that. Why? That, what, what, too expensive. Just and, simply money. Yeah. So much of this comes down to money, Matt. When DOT knocked that idea down, the conversation shifted to what we were just talking about with the Bowen Bridge being a boulevard and a real entryway into downtown Asheville if you're coming from the west. And so the focus was, as I was explaining before, widening that bridge to really allow much improved walkability, bikeability. There has also been recent talk about how land can be reclaimed for future development, especially as you move into downtown Asheville. There will be new parcels that will be available for development. The way the Bowen Bridge is being talked about now, the way you're framing it, This has to be one area of alignment between the cycling and pedestrian multimodal transportation interests and the business community, because this can only help local business, correct? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. This project has taken on so many 
iterations. Where are we at now with construction? And is this a green light? Are we going to see this or are they going to change? So tell us where we're at with the project and then the fate going forward. I'm hesitant because I've covered this for so long and it's never happened, but it looks like it is happening, Matt. I attended a North Carolina Department of Transportation meeting a couple of weeks ago in which they called together all kinds of highway engineer consultants, contractors. They're looking for minority business owners to be involved in this $1.2 billion project. It's the biggest in terms of complicatedness of the project and money-wise for North Carolina DOT. I find that really fascinating because when you talk about the history of DOT, we're talking about Raleigh and that whole, the Triangle, Charlotte area. This is the most expensive? Yeah. I be- Why? I don't quote me on that, Matt. I, it's I might, too late. Yeah. You're right. No, no, no. Okay. But, we'll have to double check, but it is one of the most expensive. You see the costs keep going up and up, and then we talk about where we're at right now with supply chain issues, inflation. That's all adding big cost to this highway project. But yet, are you seeing an end of the tunnel here? Are you seeing that we are moving ahead in a way that there is a finish line? Yes, we are finally seeing a finish line. And that is that DOT officials at this meeting of all the contractors and subcontractors and consultants, they're bringing everybody in together because they say they are awarding the first contract of this project in October. And they want people to start connecting now. They, DOT officials have narrowed the big general contractor list down to three for the first contract award, which I believe is the biggest piece. DOT, in their minds, has this project broken up into three pieces. Every time I ask DOT officials, they say, this is the plan. Roughly six to eight years, you can think about this project going on. We all know from DOT's track record that even that is optimistic. I would say a pretty safe bet would be about a decade of road construction because this is so complicated, Matt. If you go out on a Friday afternoon and try to cross Bowen Bridge through Asheville, or if there's a wreck any day of the week, On the north end of the river, north of Asheville, or on the south end, down South Asheville Way, the snarl, the delay, the traffic jam is maddening. I can't imagine what the road construction will do to our traffic. The other sense I get mad is this is going to tax the construction crews of Western North Carolina in a way that they've never been used before. The demands for concrete, gravel, workers, those are really big, heavy demands on these three major highway construction deals. How is that going to impact the overall work? I just don't know. Is there anything we haven't talked about this that you think is really important for people to know contextually? When we're talking about the North Carolina Department of Transportation, there's also a history of plain politics and corruption there, to be honest with you. There have been some very high-profile scandals with North Carolina DOT. And if you think about it, it makes sense because up until now, and this actually is something I think the North Carolina General Assembly has been talking about in recent years of changing, but the governor has appointed the 20-some-odd 
North Carolina Department of Transportation board that the governor gets those appointments. Who does the governor appoint? Political contributors, friends. What do those friends do when they're on a powerful board? They help their friends. So you see, and there are many examples, documented examples of DOT board members benefiting their own businesses with highway road construction deals. And and hey, let's be clear, there are probably members of the North Carolina legislature who come from construction industries. Yes, and uh, all those Right. And so you said there are well-documented elements of corruption. Anything recently that you think is important for people to have in context with this project? There's nothing recently that I am aware of. The one that I remember is the late 1990s, then Governor Jim Hunt, who is an icon in North Carolina politics, a four-term North Carolina governor, in 1998 faced a real political firestorm when it came to light that essentially the details of the scandal were such that it was stated that it cost somebody $25,000 to get a seat on the DOT board. You had to give the governor's campaign $25,000, and in return, you would get an appointment. That was a brutal scandal for Hunt, who was broadly loved and did a lot of good things as well. What I've seen in these recent years, Matt, the discussion has been with a Republican-controlled legislature chipping away at the power of a governor. They want to take away more of his power to appoint seats on the DOT board. And let's put this in a broader picture, and we don't have to comment more on this, but the legislature is working to take away the governor's power to appoint seats on all boards. Yes. I want to thank my guest today, Jason Sanford of the Ash Vegas Hot Sheet. You can find and subscribe to his newsletter on Substack. Today's conversation happened inside the BB Theater in downtown Asheville, which owners Susan and Giles Collard have been so gracious enough to open to me to record my interviews. Our theme music for The Overlook, Maker's Song, comes courtesy of the Asheville band The Resonant Rogues. The Overlook is a production of Podcast Asheville. New episodes are online by 6 a.m. every weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up for our weekly newsletter at podavl.com. And please support the show by going to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash The Overlook Podcast. I'm Matt Pikin, and I'll see you on the next episode of The Overlook.